Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. All right, good morning, family. Great to be with you. My name is Steve Garcia. I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise. And if this is your first time with us, I want to say a special welcome to you and would love to meet you. I'll be out in the courtyard just after service. And if you're one of our regulars, we simply say, welcome back. You know, before my family and I moved out to Southern California, we lived in Colorado. And the weather in Colorado is very unique. I can recall a time where I was enjoying a a day off with my family on an absolutely beautiful afternoon in Colorado. 80 degrees, not a cloud in the sky, not even the smallest breeze. It was just idyllic. So we decided to take my little guy for a walk and put him in the stroller. And there's a paved path that ran a couple of miles. And so we all went out for a walk. And after a couple of miles, we stopped by a playground and let our little guy get out and, you know, climb around and go on the slides and all of that kind of stuff. And as I was pushing him on the swing, I'm looking up into the horizon and I see a small cloud starting to form. And it's not one of those fun little white fluffy ones. It's one of those really dark ones. So I pull out my phone and I check the weather app and it says nothing but clear skies for the rest of the day. So I don't think anything about it. Put it back in my pocket. And so we're playing for a few more minutes. And I look back to the horizon and those clouds are getting bigger. <laughs> And so my wife and I, we decided to take our little guy and just start heading back. And about halfway home, we get hit with this arctic cold blast of wind. I'm not talking like a gentle summer breeze. I'm talking like the kind that chills your bones. Then I look up and it's black clouds overhead. So we start booking it. (laughs) I've got my little guy, I'm running, holding him. My wife is running, pushing an empty stroller and we are like sprinting back to the house Wind is blowing. All of a sudden, it starts to rain. We're getting covered in rain. We jump up onto our porch, get inside, and I check my phone on the weather app again, and now the temperature is 30 degrees. In a matter of 15 minutes, the temperature dropped 50 degrees, 5-0, and there was a winter storm warning. What started as a day of Going on a walk in a pair of shorts ended with us shivering under some warm blankets as snow was falling outside. And we were given a very sober reminder that day just how quick the atmosphere can change. And the book of Revelation paints a very similar picture. Life is going on as usual, an idyllic afternoon. And then in a moment, things could change. And where you and I stand in this moment today is we're looking to the horizon and there is a cloud coming. There are things that are coming our way in the future. And we can either blow it off, not think twice about it, just keep living the way we've been living, or we can respond to the truth of God's word. Today we continue in part two of our message series about the end times called Future Revealed. If you missed part one, I would encourage you to go back to our YouTube channel and listen to that, or you can listen to the sermon podcast audio on sunrisechurch.org. But last week, we discussed how Jesus showed up to his old friend, the Apostle John, and gave him this revelation. 
John was exiled to a labor camp in the islands of Patmos, Greece, and Jesus told him, grab a pen, grab a scroll, and start writing everything that you see. And he began by giving him this revelation about these seven local churches in the area of Turkey. These churches represent the church for all time everywhere. And then Jesus told him, we're going to move from the present to the future. This is Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And this is what it says. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John has been been given this revelation, this vision, and in this vision, he's transported to this portal into another dimension. And when he steps through it, he finds himself in the very throne room of God. And so he starts describing it. Verse two, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. So in this awesome and terrifying scene where John finds himself at the epicenter of heaven. He's taking it all in, which was a feast for the eyes, but at the same time, he was tasked to write it all down. Imagine how challenging that had to have been. So so let me give you a scenario. Picture this. Picture that a child in 1922 has been transported 100 years into the future to 2022, and he's tasked with Write down all the things you see the kids in 2022 doing. And so one little girl is thumbing through her smartphone. One kid is playing with his remote-controlled drone. And another kid is skating around the cul-de-sac on a hoverboard. So what would a kid from 1922 say when he's trying to describe this? You know, at once I saw a girl holding a talking brick with people inside it. You know, and then I, then I saw a flying spider with four circles being commanded by a child. And then I saw another kid coming at me. He, his legs weren't even moving, but he was, he was like he was floating. I mean, in 1922, you wouldn't have a category to describe what children are like in 2022. And yet imagine the Apostle John living in the first century, and he's being given a vision of things that are going to happen in the future that haven't even occurred yet in the 21st century. That's a 20-century gap, or 2,000 years. And so a lot of what John writes down in this book of Revelation is difficult to understand. And it's, it's left for us to do our best to interpret these things. And if we're not careful, we can get so down in the weeds of the book of Revelation trying to interpret every little thing and miss the larger story of what Jesus is trying to teach us. And what he's telling us is that there is a world of suffering that is coming our way. Let's read together in Revelation chapter 6. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. So if you have a Bible, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6, let's pick things up. You know, let's jump back to Revelation 5. Let's pick things up in verse 1. Revelation 5. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So now John's given this vision of this scroll. 
The scroll represents the judgment of God upon sin. It's got seven seals that are keeping it shut. And there's this awesome scene that plays out in heaven where everyone is, is crying out, who's worthy to open the scroll? And this is a passage we're gonna dig into much more on Easter Sunday. Uh, but, but basically, they're crying out, who, who can do this? Who's, who's the one who can judge the sins of the world? Well, the only one who died for the sins of the world is the one who could judge the sins of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God slain before the sins, for the sins of the world. And he comes forward and he grabs the scroll and begins opening these seals. What's behind these seven seals? We find out in Revelation 6, verse 1. He says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So the Lamb is Jesus. The creatures are angels. And the first seal broken reveals a rider on a white horse. So what is this rider on a white horse? Well, many people believe this to be pestilence or a worldwide illness. Uh, And so you can imagine that when the pandemic hit, there was people coming out of the woodwork saying, see, this is COVID-19. This is the, the rider on the white horse. The events of Revelation are unfolding. Unfortunately, there is nothing in this passage that suggests this white horse represents pestilence. That is a wildly unbiblical theory that ought to be dismissed. The more popular theory is that, well, this is Jesus, because we find out later on in the book of Revelation that Jesus returns as a victor riding on a white horse. Here's the problem with that interpretation, is that Jesus was the one who opened the seal. Why would he also be the one riding on the horse? The second thing is that one of the angels commanded him to come. Messengers don't give commands to the king. It's the other way around. What I believe this white horse is instead is the antichrist, the deceiver, who's coming on a white horse that has all of the outward appearance of purity and strength, but all he is is a cheap facsimile of the true rider on the white horse who will come again. And this antichrist is gonna come and he's going to deceive the whole world. More on him in a couple of weeks. Let's continue to read verse three. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So the red horse represents war. The Antichrist will lull the world into thinking that peace is gonna be the story forever and then the red horseman is going to rip that apart and strip the world of peace. Nations will rise against nations. We'll fight against the enemy and then we'll turn and fight each other. That's the second seal. Let's look at the third. Verse five. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. The black horse represents famine, which is the logical consequence of war. And so there's coming a time in our future where our food supply chain will be massively cut short. Now, we have a little bit of context for this. Do you remember in the very early days of the pandemic, the first time you walked into a store and saw empty shelves? 
I mean, that was a very disorienting moment, wasn't it? Because we live in a country where that sort of thing doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden we're looking and, and things are gone. It felt like it changed overnight. We went from being okay and having all we need to, to now getting scared and people going to Costco and panic buying hundreds of cases of water and hundreds of rolls of toilet paper and any Clorox disinfectant they can get their hands on so they can go home and wipe their grocery bags like a crazy person. You know, I mean, that felt like that happened real quick, didn't it? Well, this is just a shadow of what's to come, that someday a, a famine is going to hit. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the pale horse represents death. It was probably a pale shade of green like a rotting corpse, and right behind it was Hades. Death claims the body. Hades, or hell, claims the soul. And it was given authority to take out a fourth of the world's population. Right now, around our globe, our population is estimated at just below eight billion. One-fourth of the population is two billion people. That would be like if you took the United States, China, and Russia and just cut them right out of the map. So what we find here in these opening verses of Revelation 6 are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they represent the judgment of God on sin, of sin upon the world. And these are not stories that were meant to just be spooky tales that you tell kids around a campfire. This is not a game, you know, like one of those goofy Facebook quizzes. Which one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse are you? <laughs> I'm the red one because I have so much relationship drama. <laughs> Look, this, this is not a game, okay? This is real, and it's coming our way, and it doesn't stop here. The other seals get open too. Let's keep reading. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. What a devastating scene. Here we're given the, the image of people who were killed, who were martyred for their faith. And they're crying out to God, will you take revenge on the people who hurt us? You know, that, that, that's not a prayer that seems like it should be in the Bible. Some of you who know your scriptures well, you might be drawn back to some of those heavier psalms, the imprecatory psalms where people cried out for God to kill the children of their enemies. These kinds of prayers are offered by human beings experiencing human emotions and praying to God, which is what you and I do. But ultimately what they're saying is, God, we trust in you with the outcome. And Jesus' response is, more Christians still have to die. Let's look at the sixth seal, verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
So now what we find in the sixth seal are worldwide cataclysmic events. Earthquakes, stars falling out of the sky, sun turning black, perhaps from the ash of erupting volcanoes. And anyone who placed their faith in the planet would realize how frail this world really is. And listen to their cry, verse 16. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Boy, aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) What kind of message is this? I bet some of you might be thinking, if I wanted to hear fire and brimstone, I'd watch one of those TV preachers on public access channel who say the word ha after every other line, you know? And the Lord said, ha, you gotta give him your heart, ha. (laughs) Full disclosure, if I were writing the Bible, I would have cut all of this stuff out. I would have just had a smiling Jesus, holding children and assuring all of us that we're gonna be okay. But here's the deal. I didn't write the Bible, but I do have a responsibility to preach the Bible. The whole thing, even the uncomfortable parts. And what we see unfolding here is a very uncomfortable scene of Jesus judging the sins of the world by allowing mass suffering. I don't know if you guys picked up on this phrase in verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb. That's an odd statement. Lambs are known to be among the most mild-mannered creatures we have on the planet. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's humble and lowly and loving. He kept his mouth silent before his accusers like a lamb going into the slaughter. But what we have to understand is that this lamb is also a lion. And judging from these passages, it appears that with Jesus, there is an end to his patience. And at some point in time, he's going to look at all of the sin in our world and say, enough is enough. Most parents get this. Many parents, even when you are at your best, when you're walking with the Lord, when you've been spending time in prayer, you're peaceful and self-controlled and dialed in as a parent, there's an end to your patience. You held it together the first 83 times your kid said, mom, 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 mom. But by number 84, you snapped. There was screaming and stomping and somebody threw macaroni and cheese across the room. There's an end to your patience. But that's because we're frail human beings. Jesus is perfect. And so this this act of judgment isn't because he lost control and snapped. It's because there's another aspect of his character that we see on display here that we don't talk about too often. And that is his justice. We live in a world crying out for the justice of God. And we feel so powerless to see how much systemic injustice there is. We've got evil dictators and corrupt governments and broken policies and we're crying out for justice. In fact, many people don't believe in Jesus because of the injustice in the world, and their thought is, well, if Jesus were real, he would do something about it. Well, friends, one day he will. One day Jesus is gonna bring about justice, and that's what we're seeing 
played out in Revelation 6. It's time to pay the piper. And many people are going to get mad at Jesus for this. Friends, we can't have it both ways. We can't be mad at Jesus for all the injustice in the world and then be mad at Jesus when he does something about it. So what do we do with all of this? All of these heavy words of future suffering. How do I respond to this? I want to give you a couple of thoughts that I think are worth jotting down. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's three different responses to future suffering. Here's the first one. Number one, care about those who don't know Jesus. This is our starting point. If you read through the book of Revelation and you get to the end of this message series and all you have to show for it are theories and interpretations and, and all these charts and graphs and images, if that's all you have, you've completely missed it. Because the book of Revelation has many, many calls to Christians, and among one of the most massive calls is a call to Christian compassion, to care about people who don't yet know Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is coming again. In fact, he said so himself. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus himself said, I'm coming again, and the second time he comes, it's not gonna be as a cute little baby in a manger. He's coming in all his glory with all his angels. And shortly after he said these words, he was arrested and charged and crucified and mocked as king, but three days later, he rose from the grave, appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses and ministered for a period of 40 days, and then this happened, Acts chapter one. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the, into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming again, and it's not going to be a mystery like he's in Bethlehem somewhere. No, the whole world will know. Just like he went up into the clouds, he's going to come down out of the clouds. One thing you can bank on is that Jesus is coming again. He said himself he's coming again. The two men in white testified that he's coming again. The book of Revelation prophecies about him coming again. That's the what. We don't know the how. How it's all going to play out when he comes again. Now, a little more than 150 years or so ago, a relatively new teaching began influencing Christianity. It was known as the doctrine of the rapture. And while the word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, it, it comes from a, a word meaning to, to seize away or to take away. And the idea behind this doctrine is that the second coming of Christ is not a one-part event, it's a two-part event. The secret coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And what this doctrine teaches is that prior to all of the suffering talked about in Revelation 6, that Jesus will return and secretly snatch away all of his believers so that they don't have to go through the suffering. I do think it's important to note that for the previous 18 and a half centuries, the primary belief of the church was that the second coming of Christ was a one-part event. 
where Christians would, in fact, suffer through all of these things talked about in Revelation 6, and then Jesus would come again. And so one of the, one of the uh, things about this, this doctrine of the rapture is that it is justified by a lot of scripture verses that have merit, but we can't know for sure if it's gonna happen. At best, it's, uh, it's, it's a biblically-based theory. But what if it doesn't happen? You know, I, I think that one of the primary criticisms of the doctrine of the rapture is that it can lead Christians to a rather cold and calloused view of the world. Saying, well, you know what? If you're not a Christian, stinks to be you because when the rapture comes, I'm out of here. But even if the rapture does occur, you know people who don't know Jesus. Do you care about them? They will be left for the suffering. You know, a couple of, last week we, we issued this prayer and, and fasting challenge. The idea was that we help you to fast from something each day so that you could pray for people who don't yet know Jesus. And when we issued that challenge, I wonder how many of you yawned. And my question for you, if that was you, is simply this. Do you care about people who don't know Jesus? One of the ways you care about people who don't know Jesus is to pray for people who don't know Jesus. One of the ways you care about people who don't know Jesus is when you share Christ with people who don't know Jesus. This fasting challenge is a great way to get you jump-started. But another way to care about people who don't know Jesus is to look at this from a global perspective. Right now, on our news stations, we are being bombarded with images of suffering that are taking place in Ukraine. As we speak, there are mothers sheltering in underground train stations to get away from the bombs falling from the sky. They have scarce food and water, limited sanitation, all while caring for babies. And we see their faces of suffering, and for so many of us, our first thought is, well, now our gas prices are going up. Where's the care? Not only that, but 40% of the world's population has never even heard the name of Jesus. It's estimated that there are over 7,000 people groups in the world who have little to no access to a Bible, a church, or even another Christian. We call them unreached people groups. And so many Christians, we love to argue about the second coming of Jesus when three billion people on the planet haven't heard about the first coming of Jesus. This is what it means to care, to care about the world. You know, it bothers me when Christians have a calloused view of those who don't know Jesus. Well, I know suffering's coming, but I'm gonna be gone for all of that. Friends, listen, we have to be careful that we don't have more faith in the rapture than we do in the Savior. Because when you have faith in the Savior, that ought to stir within you Christian compassion. Here's the first response to the future suffering. Number one, care about those who do not yet know Jesus. Number two, cry out for those suffering because of Jesus. Now, I wanna affirm right now that there are many of you in this room who are suffering. Some of you are suffering through things like chronic pain and just frustrated that the doctors haven't come up with any solutions or the solutions they do come up with are too expensive for anybody to afford, so you just live with the pain. Some of you are suffering emotional scars from something somebody did to you. Some of you are, are suffering from 
things of your own choosing, consequences that are still affecting you and your relationships today. And my prayer for you is that you would not push Jesus out of your suffering, but that you would press in and suffer knowing that Jesus is going to bring you hope on the other side. But I think it's important to differentiate between suffering and suffering because of Jesus. So much of the suffering talked about in Revelation 6 is a direct result of a relationship with Christ. Let's read again at the it's seal number five in Revelation 6, 9. It said, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. You know, we see this image of people who died as a direct result of their faith. Jesus warned us that as a direct result of following him, hardships will come. But it's so important for us to remember that what we fear as a future reality is somebody's current reality. Even as we speak, around the globe, brothers and sisters are being crushed because of their faith in Jesus. You know, this year, a brand new country emerged to number one on the list of countries that persecute Christians the most, and that's Afghanistan. Ever since the Taliban moved in, life for a Christian in Afghanistan is brutal, especially if you're a woman. Number two on the list, and sat forever as number one on the list, is North Korea. In North Korea, if you place your faith in Jesus instead of Kim Jong-un, you are gonna be thrown into a labor camp, similar to what happened to the Apostle John. And when COVID-19 hit North Korea in a country that was already scarce on food, a massive famine occurred. And there's stories coming out of North Korean Christians who were giving up their only piece of bread for the day to other people in exchange for a chance to share the gospel. I was just reading this past week of four young Iraqi men who were killed by soldiers of the Islamic State. They were threatened with death to renounce Jesus and reconvert to Islam. And their answer in this moment was, we love Jesus, we will always love Jesus, and we will always serve Jesus. So they were beheaded right on the street. All four of these young men were under the age of 15. These were the people that John saw under the altar of souls. People like these Iraqi teenagers who because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained, they suffered. And we have the responsibility to cry out on behalf of our brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering those who who don't know Jesus, the unreached people groups, those who are being persecuted. Every now and again, I'll be laying in bed at night and I'll wake up and I'll have such a, a hard pressing on my soul to pray for such people, to pray for the unreached tribals in the mountains of Nepal, or to pray for the believers in places like Nigeria who are getting brutally killed as a result of their faith. Our brothers and sisters all around the world are experiencing the events that we see as future. For them, it's right now. Their world is ending right now. It's our responsibility as the church to cry out 
on their behalf. Three responses to future suffering. Number one, care about those who don't know Jesus. Number two, cry out for those suffering because of Jesus. Here's the third one. Commit myself to living for Jesus. Amen. A very interesting picture unfolds at the beginning of Revelation 7, much different than what we saw in Revelation 6. I want to read that together. Verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. At the start of Revelation 7, Jesus presses pause on all of the destruction and suffering. He commands his angels to go to the four corners of the globe and hold back the winds of suffering. Why is he doing this? You know, Jesus could have just judged the world with a snap of a finger and it would have all been done in an instant. So why is he going through all of these apocalyptic steps? Here's why. Because even as the whole world is going to fall apart, he still gives us time. It's incredible. He is the God of love and yet he is the God of wrath. He is the God of mercy and the God of justice. He's the lion and the lamb. And in the midst of this suffering, he presses pause. And you know what? It works. Look at verse two. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And so I'm sure if you know anything about Revelation, you've heard of things like the mark of the beast, we're gonna get into that in coming weeks, but here we see the counter to that. The mark of the beast was a, a, a symbol representing someone's allegiance to the wrong God. Here, at the start of Revelation 7, we see people with a mark representing their allegiance to the one true God. And there are a million theories about who this 144,000 is. In fact, some Christian cults love to appropriate this passage and try to fit it into their beliefs, uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. But here's my best understanding of the 144,000. It's not an exact number, but a summary of the many Jews who during this time will see all of the catastrophe and chaos and suffering and they'll put two and two together and turn their hearts over to Jesus Christ. They will commit their lives to him. And it doesn't just stop with them. Keep reading, verse nine. And after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now we have one of the most beautiful pictures in all of scripture. A multitude, so John can't even count them all, of every tribe, every people group. Tall, small, young, old, every skin color every social status, all united around the throne of God with arms stretched wide, praising Jesus, saying, thank you for saving us. Who are these people? Verse 14, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the people who see all of the destruction going on and they drop to their knees and they drop their pride and say, Jesus, I commit to you my life. 
And then listen to this encouragement given to those suffering of the hope that awaits you on the other side. And Jesus says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Never will they have to worry about where their next meal is gonna come from. Jesus will be their portion. Never will they have to run and hide and fear. They will be protected by the perfect peace and presence of Jesus. And never again will they suffer pain, loss, depression, because Jesus will wipe every tear from their eye. You would think that this would be enough, but the scary thing is, after all of the suffering, that was only round one. There were still two more rounds to go. Because when the seventh seal is opened, it gives way to seven trumpets, which are more judgments upon the world. Things like a third of the earth being destroyed, a third of the population being wiped out. The seven trumpets give way to seven bowls, more destruction. Things like festering sores on people, scorching heat, severe earthquakes. And you would think that after all of this suffering and chaos, that people would finally fall to their knees and give their lives to Jesus. But yet, John tells us how so many in those days will respond. Revelation 16, 9. They cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Amidst all of this, many people will still grit their teeth, hang on to their pride, and point their finger at Jesus and say, I hate you. Friends, right now, Jesus has opened a window to all of us in this room and listening to this online. And it's a window that's far less painful than the window that will be opened in the future. And the question is, where do you stand with the Lord? I wonder how, how many of us, we're not committed to living for the Lord. We got one foot in, one foot out. Stop playing the games. It's time to come back to him today. For some of you, you have not given your life to Jesus because you believe there's still more time. The one thing we are not guaranteed is time. And I believe today that Jesus is speaking to somebody and he's calling your name and saying today is the day for you to come forward and commit your life to Christ. No more running, no more hiding, no more playing. Today is the day. If you've never prayed to receive Christ, I wanna help you do that. In just a moment, I'll give you a simple prayer that you could repeat after me. It's just a prayer of admitting your sins, believing in faith that Jesus died in your place and, and committing to follow him. And if you've never intentionally prayed a prayer like this, don't leave here without taking care of the most important decision of your life. So now's the time I wanna invite you all to close your eyes and bow your heads to help us focus. And if you've never prayed to receive Jesus, I want you to repeat after me in the silence of your heart. Jesus, today I commit my life to you. Pray those words right up to heaven. Jesus, today I commit my life to you. I believe in faith you are the son of God who died in my place. And I ask for your forgiveness. 
My sins are many. I ask that you wash me clean. Will you change me, O oh God? So I could leave my old life behind and follow you into new life. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Now, if you're somebody who prayed that prayer today for the first time, this is what I'd love for you to do. On your programs, there's a little box on here that says, I said yes to Jesus at the bottom. I'd love for you to fill that out and just tear off this card. And when the offering bags go by in just a second, drop that in. If God's speaking to you today and you sense that he's wanting you to take your next step, here's what I would love for you to do. After service, you can head out to the, into the lobby here. There's a table that says next. You could stop out there, get any questions answered. Or for a non-contact option, you could text the word next to 909-281-7797. One of our staff people will interact with you and help you. Maybe you said yes to Jesus today. You've got some questions. Maybe you want to get baptized. Maybe you want to serve somewhere. Maybe you want to join a small group. Take that next step. Stop by the next table in the lobby or text next to 909-281-7797. Friends, we live in a broken world, but someday Jesus is going to return to fix it all. But we have to know it's going to get worse before it gets better but he will be with us every step of the way. Next week, we're gonna talk about how the hostility in this world is going to increase against the followers of Jesus and look at a very interesting thing that's gonna take place on the streets of Jerusalem. You're not gonna to wanna to miss it. So be thinking about who you can invite with you to church next Sunday to hear this powerful message. For now, let's make sure that we care about those who don't know Jesus. Pray for them, share Christ with them, we don't know how much time we have. Let's cry out for those suffering because of Jesus. Our brothers and sisters all over the world, they need our prayers. And let's commit our lives to living for Jesus. No more games, all in. You know, one of our staff guys is connected to somebody in Ukraine who's ministering to people amidst all of the war and the chaos. And so they were asked, were you guys able to get out of the country safely? And they said, we're not leaving now. This is when the church is needed the most. May you and I adopt that same mindset. We're not just running away. This is when the church is needed the most. People are suffering and living in darkness. May we, the church, shine the light of Christ even amidst the suffering. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to pray for us as we conclude our time. Lord God, I just pray that for anyone in here whose fear and anxiety spiked up as they hear about these things, Lord, that instead you would infuse in them a confidence in your love and provision and also a burden to pray for those who don't have that same confidence. God, I pray for anybody in here who prayed to receive Jesus today. Lord, I pray that you would, you would be with them, help them to take that next step, help them to keep going. Lord, for those who have not yet made that decision, God, I pray that you would convict their heart, trouble their heart, Lord. Help them to see that you are our only hope. We worship you, Lord. And even now as we give over our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, this is our act of worship, our, our act of trust, saying we thank you for how you've 
already given this money, it's yours, and so we return it back to you, Lord. May you use this to bless people all over the world in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. And Lord, we look forward to the fact that you're coming again. Even so, Lord, come quickly. And if you believe this in your heart, then let the church say, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I wanna encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.